We've gathered together today to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. When I talk about worship, I, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe you think of the form of worship. Maybe if I talk about worship, someone might think of an organ. Talk about worship, somebody else might think about a praise band. When I talk about worship, I think many people today think about music and make music as almost synonymous with worship. People will say, well, let's worship the Lord. They mean let's sing. Well, singing can be an important part of worship, but it certainly is not the totality of worship. This morning, we have a passage that centers upon worship. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, it's the key verse of the passage. And it states, Matthew 14, 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The central theme of this passage is worshiping Jesus as the Son of God. Now, this particular account of Jesus walking on the water is found in three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But it is only in the book of Matthew that contains this verse of how they worshipped Jesus. And it's only in the book of Matthew that it contains the incident of Peter walking on the water. Therefore, since it's the only Gospels that contain this particular verse, it's what distinguishes this account from the other Gospel accounts. So we want to focus on the realization that the disciples came to that Jesus is the Son of God and how they worshipped him. Worship in this verse, is more than just words. Notice in verse 33, it says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They worshipped him in their words. But it was more than just their words. Isaiah makes it clear that we can have the right words, but if the heart is not in it, it is not true worship. Isaiah 29, 13 says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, therefore God is not going to hear them or honor them. So it's not simply saying the right words or being taught the right doctrine. But those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There must be a heart response. It must be a realization of the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so this morning, I want us to consider the steps that led to the disciples' fuller, more complete understanding that Jesus is the Son of God and thus worshiping him. So our theme this morning is the steps of obedient faith that lead us to worship the true Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The first step of obedient faith that leads to the true worship of Jesus 
is overcoming our reluctance to follow his commands when they contradict our own desires. There are three commands in this particular portion of God's word. The first command is referred to implicitly, not explicitly. Notice verse 22. Immediately, now these words, he made the disciples get into the boat. He made the disciples get into the boat. That's our command, stated implicitly, not explicitly. It doesn't say, and the Lord commanded them to get into the boat. It says, the Lord made them get into the boat. Kind of an unusual phrase, one might think. There are nine times that this word appears in the New Testament. Five times it's referred to as made. Four times it's referred to as forced. Jesus forced his disciples into a boat. Forced them into a boat. I submit to you he did not wrestle them. I don't think that he picked them up and threw them into the boat. I don't think he pulled out a gun and pointed at their head and said, get into the boat. But nonetheless, it says that he made them or forced them into the boat. The emphasis of the verse is their reluctance to get in the boat. They didn't want to get into the boat. Their desires ran contrary to the command and purpose and will of Jesus. So why didn't they want to get in the boat? It's not because they were afraid of the water. If you look at uh, the passage, it says in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Immediately upon what? So let's review where we were two weeks ago, since we haven't been in the book of Matthew for two weeks now. The larger context. John the Baptist has just died. John the Baptist had not died some ordinary death. He had been martyred for his faith and martyred in a very cruel way. He had been beheaded. And so now the disciples of John the Baptist are carrying and burying the beheaded torso of John the Baptist. Jesus hears about John the Baptist's death from John's disciples, Matthew 14, 12. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now remember that John the Baptist is a colleague in ministry. He's a friend of Jesus, and he's a cousin to Jesus. He's very close to Jesus. And Jesus' response to the news of John's death is that he wants to get alone and pray. If you remember in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, there are four emphases in that verse of how Jesus just wants to get away. Verse 14, Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard this, that is about the, the death and burial of John the Baptist, first he withdrew from there. This word to withdraw means that, that he ceased ministering in that particular locale. It's more than just that he went away. He wanted to get away from ministry. It's like a basketball team withdrawing from a tournament. It's more than just that they aren't a part of the tournament, but they draw back from the tournament, no longer participating. Jesus didn't want to participate in ministry. He wanted to get alone. He wanted to pray. Secondly, it tells us in this verse 13 that 
He got into a boat. And the reason he got into a boat was to get away from the crowds. He could have easily walked around the outside rim of the Sea of Galilee because that's what the crowds did. But he got into a boat and made the journey to the other side so that expressly he didn't have to deal with the crowds. Thirdly, we find out in this verse, in verse 13, that he goes to a desolate place. He goes to an uninhabited area. He goes to an area where he's not going to have to deal with people. Because he wants to get alone. He wants to pray. And then lastly, it tells us in verse 4, excuse me, in verse 13, that he went by himself. Not literally. The disciples are with him. But the crowds are not. He wants to get alone. Now think about that incredible desire to get alone, good desire, wants to get alone in order to pray. And when he gets to where he is going, there's a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. So there's probably 12,000 people waiting for him. What a disappointment. Here he is, going to get away, and lands on shore, and there are 12,000 people there to greet him, all with their needs. And if you remember, Jesus postpones his need to get alone and need to pray to minister to those people. He heals their sick. Then the disciples come to him and say, you know, Jesus, it's getting late. You ought to send these people away because they need to eat. There's no food here. Probably because they too wanted to be alone. And perhaps because they really were concerned about the people. And then Jesus says, well, you give them food to eat. They say, how can we give them food to eat? Then, of course, he multiplies the bread and the fishes. Once he has done that, he has met the physical needs of the disciples, for they eat also. But now there are spiritual needs to be met. What occasioned this jaunt was the desire to be alone because of hearing of the death of John the Baptist. Now, the disciples have questions. Why would Jesus allow John the Baptist to die? How could this faithful servant of God be allowed to experience this kind of horrendous death? What was God up to? What was God's purpose? Was this something that Jesus was not aware of, that he had been blindsided? There were so many questions that they wanted to ask Jesus. And remember, they haven't had their alone time with Jesus yet. The whole purpose was to go and be alone. They waited patiently all day for Jesus to heal all these people. For Jesus to feed the crowds. And now finally the day is ended. The crowd has eaten. And now our text, verse 22, immediately. Immediately. It is immediately upon the feeding of the 5,000, the end of the day, before they can get alone, before anything else takes place, he cuts to his disciples and, and orders them into a boat. And says that he will meet up with them later. Verse 22. 
immediately made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. They are forced to get into a boat because they want to stay and be with Jesus. Now, of all the desires that one could have, wouldn't you think that that would be a good desire? A holy desire? A righteous desire? What could be wrong with wanting to be with Jesus? And yet, it is a desire that Jesus denies. You can't be with me. Get into a boat and leave, and I'll catch up with you later. The first step in recognizing the authority of Jesus and worshiping him as the Son of God is when our desires run contrary to his desires and we submit our desires to him nonetheless. I think it's readily easy to see that we should do that when our desires are sinful. When we want unholy things and they run contrary to God's commands, obviously we should submit to those things. But what about when our desires are righteous desires and they are not met? Wouldn't it be right to want your children to make a profession of faith? Wouldn't that be a good desire? That your children know the Lord Jesus Christ is their personal Savior? But what if your children haven't made a profession of faith? Or one of your children haven't made a profession of faith? Or wouldn't you desire that when your children know the Lord that Things are going well for them, materially, spiritually, physically, and yet things aren't going well. They lose their job. They experience some tragedy in their life. When there's nothing wrong with the desire, but yet it appears that God has some other intention than what our desire is. They're going to learn that Jesus is the Son of God by submitting to Jesus' desire. They get in the boat. Jesus then finally got time to be alone and praise, verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we pick up on the disciples again who are now doing the will of God. They are in the boat, headed for the other side, just as they had been told. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. They had had a long and difficult night after a very grueling and emotional day. They had had a tough day. Just heard about the death of John the Baptist decided they were going to take a little break from ministry, only to find that when they get to the other side, there's 12,000 people waiting for them, only to find that they've got to help this rowdy crowd get some kind of order, bring the people to Jesus to be healed, then feed 12,000 people. Think of the work involved in that. 
as they are dispensing this food, as they're doing all these things. Now all of that is done. And as soon as it's done, they finally want to speak to Jesus. And he says, get in the boat and go to the other side. It's nighttime. They're tired, emotionally, physically, spiritually. They get into a boat. And now, in this boat, they are experiencing difficulty. Verse 24. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. Beaten by the waves. Literally tormented by these waves. And the worm was working against them. Frustrating them. They couldn't get to the other side. They must have thought, if only Jesus would have been with them. Earlier in the book of Matthew, they were in a boat with Jesus. Matthew eight twenty three. And when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that the winds and the sea obey him? If only Jesus was there this time. He could do what he had done before. He'd calm the waves. He'd still the winds. Everything was fine. But Jesus was not with them. They were doing what God wanted them to do. But it wasn't going well. It was not what they wanted to do. It was not what they desired to do. But they were doing it. They were tired. They were frustrated. And things were getting tough, but they continued to do what God wanted them to do anyway. I think there's some important lessons to be learned here, and that is just because we are doing what God wants us to do, it doesn't mean everything's going to go well. Just because we are following his commands, it doesn't mean life is easy. Winds still blow. Waves still beat. Our good intentions do get frustrated. But this is when faith perseveres. This is when we keep doing what God would have us to do. But Jesus was in control of all that was taking place. Mark tells us that, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against him. This is while he's praying, according to the book of Mark. So Jesus is praying, well aware of everything that's taking place and apparently doing nothing about it. Then, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., something amazing happens. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, that would be 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now, they certainly were not anticipating that Jesus would come to them walking on the water. They had witnessed Jesus do some amazing things. They had seen miracles of various kinds, including the one of just that day, multiplying the fish and the loaves. 
but they had yet to see Jesus walking on the water. That was a brand new experience. So what did they do? The answer is they responded in great fear. They were scared silly. Four ways in which their fear is described in this verse. First, they were terrified, verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. Literally, they were shaking, shaking. They thought they had seen a ghost. They were terrified and said, it's a ghost. Why would they think it's Jesus? Why would they, they think that Jesus is coming walking? Well, they never saw anything like that. They are in the midst of an incredible storm, and there is this eerie sight in the distance that appears like a form on the top of the water. And they say, it's got to be a ghost. And so they screamed. It says they cried out, ah! They really are. They're afraid. And now this last word, which is extremely important in verse 26. They cried out in fear. In fear. This word means to want to flee, to want to run. When you are afraid, one of the natural responses is that you want to run away. Now for me, a natural response is to lash out. You don't want to scare me. You don't want to frighten me. My dad, one morning, when I was a teenager, decided it would be kind of fun to scare me. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I went out to the barn to begin milking. I went out to the barn and everything was dark, which was really, really unusual. I never beat my dad out to the barn to begin milking and taking care of things, but it was dark and there was nothing to be seen. My dad was hiding around the corner. And so I walked into the barn, and all of a sudden, there is my dad. I just saw this figure. He didn't say anything. He just was there. And I freaked out, because I wasn't expecting to do anything. So I just, I just, I just, I just that's my reaction. Boom! I, I nailed, I, right smack in the nose. Man, gushing blood. I mean, it was, it was not a pretty sight. But he scared me. He scared me. So don't scare me, okay? It's not a good reaction. Well, their reaction was they wanted, they wanted to run. That's a pretty natural response. But the problem is they're in a boat. There was no place to go. But they wanted to run. The second step of faith that leads us to worshiping Jesus is overcoming our fears that are associated with coming to Jesus. Jesus commands them to do something now that is pretty remarkable. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It's a euphemism for have courage. It is I. It's not a ghost. Don't be afraid. Don't run. 
Don't fear. Don't try to get away. Afraid of what? It's not the storm that they're afraid of at this point. It's this ghostly appearance. It's Jesus that they're afraid of. They are afraid of him. Because they're seeing him in a way that they've never seen him before. And so they want to get away from him. Unless we can't relate to this, one of the commands that we are given time and time again in the word of God is don't be afraid. Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with the right hand of my unrighteousness. Philippians says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Matthew, we are told, do not be anxious for food. We're told, do not be anxious for raiment. We're told not to be anxious for anything. How helpful is it for you when you are deathly afraid to pick up your Bible and read, don't be afraid? Does that do the trick for you? Does all of a sudden your heart settle and that's all I need to hear. Just don't be afraid. That's what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. It's me. The remarkable thing to me is that Peter obeys Jesus' command. He is not Afraid. Peter believes it's Jesus. Look at verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and this is a third class condition in Greek, which simply means that what is stated is assumed to be true. Lord, if it's you, and I believe it is, command me to come to you on the water. Peter has to overcome his fear. Remember, they want to get away. They want to get out of this boat and run. And Peter says, have me come to you if it's you. Just the opposite of what he felt like doing. Just the opposite of his fear. Instead of running, I'll come to you. He expresses a desire to come to Jesus. He's no longer afraid. I wonder this morning what frightens you about Jesus and coming to him. What might hinder us from coming to Jesus? What in our fears? May we think that he wouldn't accept us? May we think that he is different than what he thought? What would cause us not to come to Jesus? But notice the third step of faith leading to worship. Jesus is overcoming our doubts in the midst of following Jesus' commands. So Jesus commanded Peter to come, verse 29. He said, come. He said, come. 
And I want you to look with me at, first of all, the great faith of Peter. The great faith of Peter. Verse 29. He said, come. Three things. First, so Peter got out of the boat. He got out of the boat. That goes against every facet of our experience. The first step must have been the toughest step. Can you imagine actually trusting Jesus to get out of a boat and, and, and to try to walk on water? But he does. Then notice the second thing. And walked on the water. He didn't just put one foot on the water. He, he walked on the water. And then thirdly, it says he came to Jesus. I don't know the distance. There's nothing in the text that tells us how far Jesus was from the boat. It's far enough that they don't recognize him. Of course, it's dark and the wind's blowing. Was it 10 feet? Was it 15 feet? Was it 30 feet? Was it a football field? I don't know. But the scripture says he walked to Jesus. He came to Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that he's going to cry out in fear and he is going to, he's going to be afraid when he looks at the wind and Jesus immediately, it says, reached out his hand and grabbed hold of him. So however far apart he is, Jesus is over there. He's in a boat. He gets out of the boat. He walks to wherever this is and now is right next to Jesus. Because Jesus can just, right there. He's this close to Jesus. He's made it. He's made it. He's there. And once he gets to where Jesus is, then our text says that, verse 30, he saw the wind and he was afraid and he began to sink. He took his eyes off of Jesus placed them on the winds, and then he was afraid, and then he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And so the Lord helped Peter, verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus rebukes Peter for his lack of faith. Look at verse 31. O oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? In what sense was Peter's faith little? In what sense was Peter's faith small? I described Peter's faith 
That's great. It takes a lot of faith to believe that you can walk on water. It takes a lot of faith to put it in action. There's an old story of a person who is down below watching a tightrope walker. And the tightrope walker is 90 feet above Niagara Falls, walking across the tightrope. But not only is he walking across the tightrope, he's, he's pushing a wheelbarrow as he walks across this tightrope. And the crowd is down below, and they're, they're cheering, and they're standing in awe, and they're gasping, and they're owing as this man walks across a tightrope, pushing a wheelbarrow. And then, the great high aerial act, the performer comes down in the crowd and comes up to an individual and says, do you believe I can do that again? The man says, yes, I believe that. I just saw you do it. He says, you really believe that? He says, yes. He says, get in the wheelbarrow. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about faith. It's easy to talk about Jesus being the Son of God. I bet this morning that if I said to you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I'd get virtually a 100% response, yes, I do. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me ask you, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Sure you do. Sure you do. Jesus is the Son of God. So Peter is commanded by Jesus. Now, that's important to realize. He's commanded by Jesus to get out of this boat. And he does. And he walks on the water. And he comes over to where Jesus is. Then, all of a sudden, he sees the wind. It's been there all the time. But his eyes are taken off of Jesus. He looks at the wind, and he begins to sink. Now, Jesus says to Peter, Why O you of little faith. I submit to you, when the scripture speaks about little faith, it is different than when the scripture speaks of weak faith. The the scripture tells us to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in our faith. Peter was strong in his faith. His faith was not weak, but it was little. So what's the difference between little faith and weak faith? Weak faith cannot do great and mighty and powerful things. Strong faith can. He was able to do great and powerful things by the enablement that Jesus gave. Little faith, little faith, runs out. Little faith can't continue on. It's like having a little bit of food that it nourishes you, but you don't have enough for the next day. It runs out. Peter had faith, and he had great faith, but it ran out. It got him all the way to being next to Jesus, and then all of a sudden, He ran out of faith. He looked at the winds and the clouds and saw all these things, and he began to doubt, and he began to have concern, and he began to sink. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, 
I believe that all of us have moments of great faith. I think there are moments in our lives in which we make incredible commitments to Jesus, trusting him, wanting to serve him, make legitimate commitments of turning our lives over to him, saying, God, whatever you want to do with my life, that's fine. And be very sincere about that. And then somehow, sometime later, that commitment wanes. That resolve goes away. We become concerned in the midst of fulfilling what God has called us to do and wondering if we can really see it to completion, if we can really bring it to an end. In the middle, close to the end, we've almost gotten there, and then the doubts come. That's what is meant by little faith, not lasting, not developed faith in that fullest sense. And so, we ask the question, why shouldn't Peter have been afraid? Answer, because he was with Jesus, and Jesus could help him. Notice verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. God, Jesus was right there. Jesus helped him. Jesus delivered him. Jesus saw him through. Jesus enabled him to do what he had called him to do. So why shouldn't Peter have been afraid of the wind? Well, verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus had complete control over the entire situation. He always does. He's sovereign. Jesus orchestrated all of these events. It started off by Jesus telling these men to get into the boat. We shouldn't lose sight that verse 32 says that all those in the boat worshipped him. The greatest place to be on the face of this planet at that particular moment was the boat in which Jesus was. There couldn't have been a better place to be. But they didn't want to be there initially. And they didn't understand that was going to be the greatest place to be. And they had a very great desire to be with Jesus. And that desire was being denied. And they could have thought of him as being unsympathetic, uncaring. Why in the world wouldn't you give them such a right and holy desire? 
only to see that desire met in ways in which they never fathomed. That they'd be with Jesus again after he'd walked on the water to come to them. What a tremendous demonstration of concern and power and ability, but never in a way in which they thought. Faith recognizes that God works in ways that we never thought. Grants us our desires in ways that we never intended them to be fulfilled. And yet, he does. The wind cease. And then, after the wind cease, we're given this theme verse in verse 33. Then those that were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Key word, truly. You really are the Son of God. If they were asked who Jesus was before they got into the boat, their answer would have been, the Son of God. But now, after this experience they were through, when Jesus gets into the boat, they volunteer and say, truly you are the Son of God. All of a sudden, the light went on. Worship is when the light goes on. Worship is in the midst of following Jesus' commands. When everything looks bleak and dark and stormy and unsettling, it is the heartfelt belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And if I say to you, if Jesus really is the Son of God, then why are we afraid? If the one we worship is really the Son of God, why do we doubt? If Jesus really is the Son of God, why am I reluctant to give my life over to him and relinquish my desires for what he desires, even good desires? Why can't I more readily accept and embrace what God brings into my life? Worship is coming to the realization that Jesus is the Son of God. And we worship him when we respond to him as the Son of God and place our faith and our confidence in him. Not in ourselves, not in our experiences, but in Jesus alone. Realize he brings many experiences into our life to teach us new and afresh and in a deeper way that Jesus is the Son of God. May our worship this morning go beyond these walls. May it go beyond our hymns. May it go beyond our prayers. 
May it go beyond this moment. And whatever feeling of confidence you have at this moment in Jesus as the Son of God, may it last. May it endure. May it keep you afloat. For all of the life's experiences ahead, knowing truly that Jesus is the Son of God. May we not just have flashes of great moments, but a consistency of life in responding to life's struggles and trials and temptations under the auspices and the authority of the one who is the King of kings, Lord of lords, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, who all things are placed under him, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth or things under the earth, whether they be powers or mights or dominion or any name that is named in this age or in the age to come, that everything is under the rule and the authority and the power of Jesus. Let us trust in him. And in trusting him, he is worshipped. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust in you. Talk is cheap. We talk about you being our Lord. You being our master. You being our savior. You being the creator of the heavens and the earth. How you have all might and all dominion and all authority. And Lord, there is a measure in which we believe these things. And there's a very real measure in which we don't. There are moments, there are flashes, when our hearts are strangely stirred. And we take on great risks. We are willing to trust you with incredible things. We make great commitments only later to question, to doubt, to go back. Lord, help us to have a lasting, mature, deep faith, confidence in you. Lord, mature us, develop us. Lead us to a place where our worship of you is real and true. Where we can say, truly you are the Son of God. Lord, help us this week to live our lives knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and embracing the confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.